folks, as uh, Philip's already said, I'm stepping in at uh, relatively short notice today. Uh, I normally know about a couple of months in advance of a Sunday when I'm going to preach, so uh, two days. I hope it doesn't show too much. I hope that by the end uh, we still have had some sense of uh, God uh, meeting with us and speaking to us. Um, Shall we pray and ask for his help? Father God, we've just invited you, as we've sung, to speak to us. Uh, We've asked you to speak to us uh, for the renewing of our minds. And uh, Lord, this part of your word is one that talks about uh, a person's mind being changed. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we'd be open to that as well. Amen. So, yeah, Sam and Emma are doing something quite different uh, today than what we had anticipated they might be, uh, and that's great. Uh, Please do remember them and and pray for them and celebrate with them God's goodness. Actually, them not being here today is quite good. It gives me a chance to big them up without being uh, embarrassed about that because they're not here to hear it. Um, They gave me one of the highlights of 2014. just before Christmas time last year, they hosted a, a mulled punch kind of a, a gathering for some of their neighbors uh, there on the Belmont Road, and they invited uh, Claire and I and the family to come along and to join them. And, and we had a great time. We were only there for about an hour. Um, in their kitchen, I don't think we got to move, because almost as soon as we went in, we struck up a conversation with the one uh, group that we spoke to the whole time we were there. So it was Renata from Poland with her son Philip and her partner, who three months later his name escapes me. So uh, these three Polish guys, and we chatted about all the stuff that Ulster people and Polish people have in common. So, um, well, you know, maybe you have a a long Polish repertoire. I was uh, working my limited repertoire quite hard. But we talked about uh, Christmas in Poland, uh, what, what traditions their families would have there. We talked a little bit about what it's like. But both of these people have come long-term, really, to live in Northern Ireland. They're, they're not here for six months. They've been here for six or seven years, uh, I think they were saying. Uh, we talked a little bit about that experience, which parts of that are good and which parts are, are more difficult. Uh, we talked about Robert Lewandowski. That's one common area for me. I follow German football a little bit, and he's the, the Polish superstar striker who plays for Bayern Munich. Um, so we, we talked about all sorts of things. And in that hour, I got a lovely glimpse of what the world looks like when race isn't a barrier, but instead is a, a thing of beauty. Uh, that brings color, uh, variety, and richness into our lives. This passage this morning reminded me of that December afternoon on the Belmont Road. There's a very clear trajectory in the recent chapters of Acts, and if you've been with us, you'll you'll have a sense of what that is. The the picture I put up last week maybe helped to to give us a, a visual image of that. The church is born at Pentecost in Jerusalem when the the Spirit comes on the people powerfully. 
In a short period of time, there were 3,000 believers in the city, then 5,000. But as we said last week, it all seemed to be very Jerusalem-centric for a while until persecution fell on the church. And then uh, they start to, start to move and start to move out. There's a bit of a precursor or a bit of a, a preemptive thing going on because Stephen is already teaching Grecian Jews in, in the city of Jerusalem. So he's already reaching out to other nations. But then if you remember last uh, week, we looked at Philip, uh, an evangelist who went out from Jerusalem to Samaria. And he's connecting with people like Simon, uh, the magician and the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then um, in the passage that we would have been looking for or at today if Sam had been here with us, we'd have seen the conversion of Saul. And of course, he's the Jew who finally is going to take the gospel way uh, right through the, the Roman Empire. So the, the, the moving from the center out of the gospel is something that's been very much in motion. And today's passage uh, just takes another further step on that outward trajectory when we meet Cornelius, a Roman centurion. It, it looks like the story of Cornelius's conversion, and it certainly is that, but I think it's, it's, not, it's fundamentally something else, and very importantly something else. I think it's the story of Peter's conversion in a particular way and the story of the conversion of the early church. Let's come back to Peter for a second. Um, I've already said that we're skipping over the Saul material uh, that's in the, the bulk of chapter 9. But let me draw your attention to the stuff at the end of chapter 9, just very briefly, to, to keep us uh, moving through the story. Peter, if you remember, was a big player in the early chapters of Acts. He's the guy who preaches at Pentecost, preaches before the Jewish religious leaders. He's gone backstage for a while, while we've met people like uh, um, like Philip last week and uh, the week before. Um, I'm forgetting his name. Stephen. Stephen and Philip have come to the fore. So Peter's back on stage here. He's lifting the storyline again. And just in passing, let your eye run over that last part of chapter 9. Because it's something I've pointed out to you before, but I just want this to accumulate for you. Peter's doing all this stuff again that we recognize Jesus is doing. He's in a place called Lydda, and what does he do there? He heals a paralyzed person. He even uses the kind of words that Jesus used. Then he's in Joppa, and what does he do there? He raises a woman from the dead. Where have you heard that before? So... Peter is just walking in the steps of Jesus. He's doing all the Jesus stuff, saying all the Jesus things, and he's doing it because the spirit of Jesus is on him. There's just this incredible continuity from what Jesus is doing in the Gospels to what his followers are doing in the book of Acts. I don't think I'll ever resolve this question. Uh, I'll be honest with you. The, The miraculous acts the miraculous deeds of the church in the early chapters of Acts and what, what I'm expecting to see Jesus do by his spirit in the church today. That's, that's just a tension for me. Um, William Barclay, the Bible commentator, 
gives me at least a way to think about this and a way to move forward. He says, talking about these times in the church, we think too much of what we can do and too little of what Christ can do. That, for me, is a good starting point to be a little bit more ambitious prayerfully and in expectation of what God could do in the church uh, and a little bit less hung up on the things I'm trying to do. Let's come now to chapter 10, one of the great turning points in the history of the church. Cornelius is important, so let's take a moment to to notice who he is. Uh, I think it helps us understand the story. So he's in Caesarea. It's a city which has taken its name from Caesar Augustus. So this is, I don't know, it's like a mini Rome, Rome away from Rome. This is as Roman a place as you can get. It's the administrative capital at that time of Judea. And as a centurion, Cornelius would have been in charge of a hundred men. These, these centurions were the backbone of the, the Roman Empire. They were the glue that held that, that huge army together and therefore the whole empire together. You don't get to be a centurion unless you're a solid citizen of Rome. But Luke tells us more about him. He tells us that he was a God-fearer. Uh, and that was a that was a technical word in those days. It had a, a very specific meaning. It meant a person who wasn't uh, ethnically a Jew, who hadn't been circumcised, who hadn't um, taken on all the practices of the Jewish religion, but had found themselves drawn to the Jewish God. They maybe come along to the synagogue, sit in, hear the scriptures taught and expounded. If you're looking for a modern analogy, it's, it's the guy who says, I don't believe, but I'm interested. You know, maybe comes along to church or reads books about faith and is open to learning about Christian things. So that's probably the best way to understand Cornelius. One thing we do know about him is that he prayed regularly, and that's probably when he had this vision that, that he had Luke tells us in verse 3 about that. We think it was probably around about 3 o'clock in the afternoon because that was the the time that the Jews had set aside for prayer. So he's probably a person who's regularly sticking to the Jewish prayer times. He's He's not a casual person about this seeking. He's hungry for God. And it was when he was praying that, that he had this vision and the angel of God comes to him and tells him to send men to Joppa, bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. Cornelius just does it. Quite funny, when you hear God giving instructions to his people, there's a wee pattern in the Bible. Sometimes the people who are supposed to say yes and do it are the ones who are slow and don't. And sometimes it's these kind of people here, the outsiders, the beyond, the fringe, they're the ones who, who simply obey. To understand this story, I think we need to take a second to to see the incredible gap that exists between Cornelius in Caesarea and Peter in Joppa. A Roman in Caesarea, a Jew in Joppa. 32 miles of Mediterranean coast, that's all. It's not far away, but it could as well be a different world. These guys inhabit entirely different worlds. 
It should never have been that way. Um, Although God's people, uh, although the Old Testament tells us many times uh, about how God has to, to judge people beyond Israel, the Old Testament certainly doesn't condone Jewish sectarianism. God's whole purpose, he tells us when he chose Abraham, was that these people would be a blessing to the whole world. The psalmist talks about the time when the Messiah would rule over all the nations. Isaiah, he predicts a time when many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The prophet Joel, he predicted a time when God would send his spirit on on people of all nations. So that's Israel's calling. That's who they're supposed to be. But the tragedy is that they had taken this, this beautiful thing, God's choosing them, calling them to be his own, and they had turned that into a, a twisted, exclusive thing, as though there was some sort of divine favoritism, as though God had chosen them, and that made them better than other people and that they were at liberty to keep other people at arm's length and to push them out. And that's what they did. They made an art of keeping people out. So, for example, no Orthodox Jew would ever go into the house of a Gentile. Like, how close are you ever going to be with a person if you've got an idea in your head, I will never enter your home? We'll connect in the office or in the marketplace, but I'll never go into your home. No Orthodox Jew would ever invite a Gentile into their home. So this was the prejudice that was at play in this time and in this context. And this was a massive barrier that had to be overcome if the Church of Jesus Christ was ever to become the the multiracial, multi-ethnic people which God intended it to be. So Cornelius, this Roman God-fearer, is praying, and he's doing that in Caesarea. And now it's Peter's turn to pray. He's up on a flat roof on a house, probably there to get some peace. I like the way Luke records this. He says that Peter's tummy's rumbling and that he's hallucinating. I can identify with that. If there's any time when my mind can go a wee bit on me, it's, it's if I, I'm too long since my last meal. God uses these hunger pangs to, to show Peter a remarkable vision. It's, it's weird. I, I don't mind saying I've read this a number of times and I find it quite weird. A sheet from the sky, all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. It, it all sounds a bit gross. Um, and then, far worse than the actual vision, is God's instruction. He says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Now, there's a problem here. The Old Testament tells Jewish people a whole load of stuff that they shouldn't eat. Leviticus 11 is one place you might find those instructions. And it's not just an instruction these, these laws about what you should and shouldn't eat, they play an important role for Jewish people. They're a badge of identity. So this is one of the ways I show that I'm a proper Jew. 
It's by eating the right stuff and not eating the wrong stuff. And as I've already said, over time, these biblical rules were expanded into places they shouldn't have been expanded to. So Jews don't eat with non-Jews. There shouldn't be any hospitality between Jews and Gentiles. And the reason for that, the reason for the focus on hospitality, I think is quite important and quite obvious maybe. Whenever you sit down with somebody and have a meal with them, it's one of the most profound ways in which you can say, we're together There aren't any barriers between us. Look, we're eating together. We're all part of the family. But this Jewish family had said, no, you're not part of our family, and you won't ever be, and we have our ways of demonstrating that and marking it. We need to know that to understand how God has chosen to reach Peter. Peter sees the vision and his response is exemplary. He, I always think it's funny when we tell God how great we are, but that's what Peter does. He says, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat that. I've never eaten anything unholy or impure. I'm a good guy, Lord. Don't, don't tempt me. He wants God to know that he's committed to being pure. And then God speaks again, says, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Not once. Not twice. Three times. No mistaking this. God's not relenting here. So it's a confusing kind of a vision, I think. Confusing for us, but as I've already explained, even more troubling for Peter himself. Uh, the, NI, or the RSV, another version, talks about Peter being inwardly perplexed, and I can see why that might be. But then the Holy Spirit tells him, just, just we're told, go downstairs, Peter, the Holy Spirit tells him, go downstairs and meet three men. And they, they say, oh, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. Nightmare, Peter's thinking. I have three Gentiles on my doorstep. Did the neighbors see this? Did they know that these guys are here? A holy angel told Cornelius to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. That's what the guys explained to Peter. And Peter's thinking, what? These guys not only come to my house, they want me now to go to to Cornelius, into his house, to talk to him. So God's teaching Peter a lesson here, and one that's going to change his life, but also the the whole course of the history of the church. He moves very quickly from saying, Peter, there's no such thing as clean and unclean animals. That's what the vision's about, but let's move on. There's no such thing as clean and unclean people. Forget it. The category's gone. That's what's going on here. No valid distinction between clean and unclean people. Peter did get it. And where we finished our reading, verse 23, uh, we're told that he... Well, I think what we're told here, and, and we, need to, we need to see this, he does something here that he never 
ever had done before and thought he would never, ever do. He went on the road with three Gentiles to go and visit in a Gentile home. 32-mile journey must have been the strangest journey for this devout Jew to go and meet a Roman commander in the Roman army. Peter had given hospitality to the Gentiles in Joppa, but now he's going to be the recipient of hospitality there in in, uh, Caesarea. This, This is maybe the first time he's ever gone into a Gentile home. It's a huge moment. And as is so often the case, He gets a wonderful welcome there. God often humbles his people by showing wonderful qualities in life beyond his community. I think there's a bit of that going on here. Cornelius gives him a beautiful welcome, gathers his whole family, gathers the crowd, so excited to have a messenger of the gospel come to his home. Whenever Peter addresses the crowd, it's it's quite interesting what he does. He doesn't fudge anything here. He's very honest. He says, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. He doesn't bluff it. He says, I shouldn't be here. This is not the kind of place I normally find myself. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any man impure or unclean. It's an incredible moment. Peter's changing the practice of an entire lifetime, and he's doing it. Why? Because God's Spirit told him. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but wonder what kind of a guy Peter is. I think in Ulster, Peter would get a hard time for this because we know that you're not allowed to change your deep-held convictions. That's a sign of weakness. To move from a position you've held all your life. I couldn't help but wonder what kind of a guy Peter is and How how could I be more like that too? How could I be open to the Spirit to the extent that he could change something in me that I've done and held all my life? How could that happen? The answer, I think, is, is in the passage here, and we haven't noticed this thread just yet. This story is all about prayer. It's a prayer story. Cornelius is praying. We were told that in verse 2, prayed regularly to God. Verse 4, it's an angel that comes to Cornelius and tells him that God's heard his prayers. Uh, Whenever Luke is recording the story for us, he he emphasizes this by mentioning prayer again in Cornelius' account in verse 31. So Cornelius, this God-fearer, is open to God. He's a man who spends time talking to and receiving from God. 
Peter's a man of prayer too. We didn't have time to dwell on it, but uh, if you look at verse 40 in chapter 9, how is it he raises the woman to, to life there? It's, it's of course only as he prays, as he relies on God. When is it the vision comes to him? It's when he's on the roof praying in Joppa. So we have two very different men here. Couldn't be more different. But of this in common, both open, both praying. And I don't think that's any coincidence. It seems to me that we have here the answer to why this radical transformation can happen in both of these lives. I think the the witness of Scripture is clear at this point. God changes people who pray. It's enough for me to get me thinking. When was the last time God got me doing something that surprised me? Something different than I would expect myself to be doing or other people might expect me to be doing. What are the changes he'd love to make today in my life? If only I was open enough to to hear it. We're not going to take much time with uh, the rest of the chapter, Peter's sermon. Uh, my guess is that you'd love it if I preached sermons more like Peter's. I think it would take about one minute to read his sermon. I'm, I'm going to guess that this is an edited highlight of, of his sermon. I hope so. Um, we know that some of these guys in the New Testament preached a, a long time. People fell out of windows asleep and all that kind of thing. So, But here we have a, a summary of the sermon, and I suppose the thing I noticed when I looked at it is it, it had all the hallmarks of a Peter Act sermon. It talked about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All his sermons do that. But I thought rather than focusing on the common ground, I'd focus for a second on a distinctive part of this sermon. Verse 39. He talks there about how Jesus was killed, and he chooses his words very carefully. He says that they killed him by hanging him on a tree. You see, Jews believed that anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed. That's an idea that runs right back into Deuteronomy, way back in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21 We read, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Jews believed about the curse of hanging on a tree. Romans believed something different, but actually, in effect, not very different. They believed that hanging a person on a cross was the ultimate way to curse them. If somebody's an enemy of Rome, what you do is you take them and you nail them up at a crossroads where plenty of people can see him. They can see him shamed, and they can see this is what happens to enemies of the empire. The Roman cross 
is the way you curse your enemy. Whenever Peter says of Jesus that they killed him by hanging him on a tree, he wants his audience that day to know that Jesus Christ is bearing a curse. There's a curse on him. And I'm going to guess what he, what he said in that sermon that we don't get a chance to hear is to explain that the curse on Jesus is not his own. It's ours. The curse is the curse that I have on me. A sinful person who's rebelled against the living God. Jew or Gentile, Peter's saying, we're all under a curse. And Jesus hung in our place to take it. He took it for us. And all can be forgiven. Jew, Gentile, no matter who. It's nice, lovely to read the way the story ends. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Guys, this is the moment we've been waiting for right through the book of Acts so far. We've been told that there would be disciples in Jerusalem, that it would travel through Judea and Samaria and on to the ends of the earth. Well, well, the Spirit's been given now to Gentiles. It's nowhere else to go now but to the end of the earth. Tom Wright points this out in his commentary. He says it's only a short step culturally to everywhere else in the then known world, from Britain and Spain in the west to Egypt and India in the east. The gospel's just gone global, and it's going now to the ends of the earth. You see, the gospel is for people like Renata and Philippe from Poland. And the gospel is for Maria. Maria worshipped with us for a period of time uh, Maria's a young lady from Bulgaria whom we got to meet at the Globe Cafe years back. Probably the big breakfast. I'm looking at Jenny and uh, she's not disagreeing. From a, an orthodox background where she had never found living faith, God, during her time in Belfast, brought her to new life in Jesus. So there's Renata and there's Philippe and there's... Maria from Bulgaria. There's all the other guys that people at the the Globe Cafe. There's people who don't go to Globe Cafe. It's for all these guys the gospel is because it crosses all those barriers and boundaries. It's for the guys in East Belfast who like their flags and curbstones, a particular palette of color. But it's also for the guys in West Belfast who prefer a different color of flags and curbstones. The gospel's for all. It's global. There are no barriers and boundaries. 
You see, Acts 10 tells the story of one guy overcoming the prejudice of a lifetime. As I've said, I think it's possible because he's open to the promptings of God's Spirit. He's a prayer. I don't mean by that, by the way, that he goes to endless prayer meetings. I I think he could go to endless prayer meetings and not be open to God. But if we're truly open, God's going to break some of our ideas wide open. Friends, I pray that as I go on, God will continue to confront prejudices, whatever they are, that he finds in me. I'll pray that he'll keep pointing out any places where I put limits on the gospel and who it might be for. And I pray for my conversion, like that of Peter. I want to be able to say, I now realize, along with Peter, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's pray. Father God, um, we have heard your word this morning. We've stood alongside Peter. I'm sure Peter thought he knew what you were about. And I'm sure he thought he, he was doing okay following you. He had preached to thousands in Jerusalem. You'd used him to, to see many come to faith. He was a leader in his own community. Surely it was all good. And yet, Lord, you had to change it, turn him around entirely. You had to show him something brand new that he had never considered before. Lord, we pray that like Peter, in those places where you need to do that work in us, we pray that we'd be just like him, open to you, Lord, make us prayerful people. Not so much preoccupied with coming to you and telling you the right way of it all the time. But a type of prayer that's open to you. Open to the promptings of your spirit. Where we hear your voice speak to us. And Lord, when we do, help us to change as you call us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.